Mormon Stories Podcast is a production of the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to Mormon Stories are fully tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at mormonstories.org. Hello and welcome to another edition of Mormon Stories Podcast. I'm your host, John DeLynn. And this has been a uh, really good year for Mormon Stories in that I had this list for a long time of like the gets, the people that I wanted to interview, um, top, top, top of my list. And just in the past few months, um, we've we've interviewed several of those people. We got to interview Daniel Peterson. We got to interview Michael Quinn. Um, and now I'm very, very, very excited to, um, have the chance to interview, um, Terrell Givens, uh, Terrell Givens may be known to a lot of you, um, but he may not be known to all of you. And so let me introduce him by first reading his bio. Uh, Terrell Givens did graduate work at Cornell university. Is that in Ithaca? That's right. Ithaca, New York. Ithaca, New York. In intellectual history and at UNC Chapel Hill, um, <clears throat> where he received his PhD in comparative literature. He holds the James A. Bostwick Chair of English and is professor of literature and religion at the University of Richmond, where he teaches courses in 19th century studies and the Bible's influence on Western culture. And this is where some of you will um, remember him, even if you don't remember him. But um, as a commentator on Mormon religion and culture, he has appeared on PBS, NPR, and CNN. The the PBS part is, I think you probably um, had the most footage of anyone in Helen Whitney's PBS documentary, The Mormons. Is that your recollection? That may be probably the most of any Latter-day Saint commentator <laughs> on it, yeah. I, I remember at a Sunstone when she came to present, she told me that you were like her one of her favorites by far. She loved you. So anyway, if, you, if any of you saw that documentary, and I recommend it highly, uh, Terrell Givens was on that. He's also the author of 10, count them, 10 books. And they're not uh, lightweight books. Uh, they're substantive books, but they're also very readable. That's just my editorializing. Sorry about that. Um, his writing has been praised by the New York Times as provocative reading and includes most recently... Uh, when Souls Had Wings, A History of the Idea of Premortal Life in Western Thought, and A Two-Volume History of Mormon Theology Underway for Oxford University Press. Now, is Richard Bushman involved in that project, too? Uh, no, he's not. No, that's <clears throat> a solo project. Okay, and you're, but you are doing something with Richard, I, I think I read. Well, we've been teaching a summer seminar together, but okay. we're not collaborating okay. on any writing project. Okay, but, but the books that <clears throat> I knew Terrell Givens um, from were um, a book called By the Hand of Mormon, which is a book about the Book of Mormon, um, again, published by Oxford University Press, and another book called uh, People of Paradox, which uh, came out, I believe, a few years back, and um, it's an excellent book. He also has his first book that I heard of is called The Viper on the Hearth. Um, was that your first book? Yes. Yeah. And, and this is just totally anecdotal, but um, Dan Witherspoon told me to mention that when Eugene England read that book, he loved it and sort of, I don't know, I got the impression that it was almost like a, 
some type of wow the baton we Eugene Ingen almost felt like he had someone to hand a baton onto. I don't know. <laughs> did, did he contact you pretty early on? Yeah, he did. He, he he called me and was quite positive on the book and very graciously invited me out to uh, UVU where he was teaching then and uh, hosted me there. That's where that was actually the first time that I became personally acquainted with Gene. How was that? Oh, it was wonderful. Unfortunately, it it happened as as you probably know shortly before he became ill and and soon thereafter passed away before I, I felt like I really had a chance for our friendship to develop. Mm. Well, I guess that's bittersweet, but I bet you're also glad you got to meet him, huh? I sure am. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I uh, I don't want to uh, forget. I, I don't want to forget to mention that you have a brand new book coming out, which you didn't even mention in the bio you sent me. It's called Parley P. Pratt, the Apostle Paul of Mormonism, um, by Terrell Givens and, and Matthew Grow. Um, and that's only that's only five of your books, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess that's about five. I um, I also did a very short introduction to the Book of Mormon, and I did a, a kind of comprehensive overview of the church for Greenwood Press a few years ago called The Latter-day Saint Experience in America. The Pratt biography is actually out. That came out just a few weeks ago. Oh, excellent. Excellent. And... Uh, then Reed Nielsen and I did a Columbia source book on Mormonism, which I think is in production. Excellent. This time. Well, you are prolific. Well, I'm uh, I'm ADD, so <laughs> I, I have to keep writing to keep my sanity. <laughs> well, we're going to do something a little bit different uh, today. It, typically, on Mormon stories, what we do is we dive in to the details, and then we end by me grilling my uh my my guests about kind of their faith and their testimony and i kind of want to do it in reverse what i want to do is i want to frame i want to frame our our subsequent discussions about your books from the standpoint of your your faith and testimony because i think that that's an important framing to understand the perspective of why you wrote the book and where you were coming from before we actually talk about the book does that make sense yeah, it, it does. I don't I don't feel that I segment my life between the professional and the personal and the spiritual. So um, that sounds like a, a good way to proceed. All right. So <clears throat> I guess let's begin by talking about your childhood a bit. And as I understand it, you're actually a convert to the church. Well, I think I am. I'm uh, <laughs> I'm in an ambiguous position. I never know when the audience has asked how many are converts and how many were lifelong members, which category I fit into since I was actually eight years old when my parents joined the church. Okay. And that was in Southern Arizona back in 1965. And uh, of course, Southern Arizona, Tucson is, uh, it's not Utah, but it's close, right? Right. Extremely large Mormon population, huge wards. And we were one of those families that joined the church, but after a few years just drifted into inactivity. And so by the time I was a teenager, we had very little contact with the church. So no pioneer ancestry? <clears throat> no. Well, yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't but know we, that? We didn't know that at the time. Okay. And so when I was 16 years old, my father had a, a kind of Lehigh experience, I guess. He became convinced that we needed to pull up roots and move 2,500 miles 
across the country and settled in a little community called Lynchburg, Virginia. And he had no job, no connections. We had no family, relatives, or friends. So it was a rather peculiar and in many ways wrenching experience for a teenager to be uprooted along with his family and suddenly find himself literally living in a tent. Uh, we, we pulled up at a campground in Virginia. I remember the man at the gate asked how many nights we'd be staying. And my father said, until I find a job. Mm. So that was, that was literally our home while he looked to make a, a new home for our family there in, in Lynchburg. Wow. And so it was, I guess, natural that he would fall back upon our membership in the church and look up a, a local branch of, of the Mormon church. Did he literally have a dream? Was it a spiritual thing or was it just... I, you a... know, I don't... He's never really spoken much about it. I don't know that he actually had a dream or a vision, but it was certainly a strong compulsion. And, you know, he had seven kids at the time. Oh, and no resources to fall back upon. So it was, in retrospect, either foolhardy or very inspired. Right. But we looked up the church, and as you can imagine, Central Virginia back in the 1970s, a family of nine Mormons shows up. They were thrilled. We practically doubled their attendance. Hmm. So <laughs> it was at that time, when I was 16 years old, that our family became rerouted, so to speak, in the, in the gospel. Okay. And uh, so I would date my conversion really to that period. That was when I first began to look into the church on my own, read the Book of Mormon for the first time, and uh, and went through a process of, of personal conversion at that time. Yeah, that's got to be, I, I'm sure that was a really important moment from your family. And, it, and if your experience is anything like uh, mine was, it, I guess falling into a a welcoming LDS community when you're a stranger in a strange land can be very uh, reassuring and comforting and gratifying and, you know, a warm, pleasant experience. Is that what it was for you guys? Absolutely. And, you know, you have to remember that in the 1970s, Lynchburg was kind of the, the fiefdom of Jerry Falwell. And so there was a kind of almost a siege mentality among the few Mormons that were there in Lynchburg because mm. Mormons were, were really vilified from the pulpit and in the local media. And so there was an unusual degree of cohesion and unity among the, the Latter-day Saints there. And it was, yeah, that was, that was, it was family. This was pre-Godmakers, right? Barely, yeah, just barely pre-Godmakers. Okay. And so you were there, uh, if, if Lynchburg was anything like Katy, Texas, where I grew up, uh, the the local Baptist church would be holding a, a weekend conference entitled Mormons and Other Cults, and your friends at school would be attending that and then coming to school and asking you questions. Is that right? Absolutely, all the time. In <laughs> fact, in, in fact, Jerry Falwell gave a sermon in those days in which he talked about the three isms that should be wasms, <laughs> and and they were communism. I think the second was atheism. And the third was Mormonism. <laughs> so, yeah, they were singled out pretty pretty directly by him. Dang. Dang. And so you you read the Book of Mormon as a 16-year-old. That's right, yeah. Tell, tell, tell me about that experience. I, I did the same thing. Well, you know, at first it was just kind of the dutiful seminary student assignment. and uh, But I, I, I remember there were just a number of occasions when I was reading through the Book of Mormon, especially as I came toward the end. 
that I, uh, I can't point any one particular moment, but they're just gradually settled upon me, a sense that, that the events that I was reading had really happened and that there was a true spirit of, of inspiration and, and truth and power and beauty behind the words that I was reading. And I became uh, devoted, a devoted disciple, really, of the Book of Mormon from, from that time forward. Really? And, and, and committed to the church then? Yeah, very much so. I, I had had my first real spiritual experience just before we left Tucson, heading east to Virginia. I, um, those young years in, in Arizona were really the happiest of my life. I was just, I loved my school. I was active in my wrestling team. I had a future that was all planned out. I was going to go to the Ivy League on a, on a, on a wrestling scholarship. This was my dream, at least. Um, friends, just happy as could be. And then suddenly to be told for no apparent reason, you're going to abandon all of this and head off into this wilderness back east was, uh, you know, it was absolutely devastating. You can right. imagine that's a tough time in, in any person's life, those adolescent years. And uh, feeling that it was a, a crisis I didn't know. In fact, I even I ran away from home briefly for a number of days. Uh, wow. Was found and brought back, not very happily. And uh, I eventually... I, I finally was uh, was drawn to my knees when I felt I had no other recourse, and I experienced at that time a an experience of the absolute reality of a divine Father who was aware of my predicament and who conveyed a a peace and an understanding to my mind that at that time was a great comfort that held forth an understanding of the, the fitness of what was taking place that I felt was later verified and confirmed in every particular. So that really laid the bedrock for my spiritual life. That sounds like a profound uh, spiritual experience, really. Well, it was, and it, it wasn't related to any particular doctrine or any particular tenet of Mormonism. It was just a generalized recognition that, uh, that prayer can be a vehicle for communion with a, a higher reality, a personal higher reality. Hmm. You know... <clears throat> uh, you know your book, People of Paradox, talks about paradoxes. Um, I I interviewed Michael Quinn a few weeks back, and everybody expects the guy to be a non-believer. They expect him to be angry at the church. They expect him to, you know, kind of be bitter and and to not believe because who knows more about church history and who's you know been treated as roughly as Michael Quinn. The right. guy would not retreat one inch, one centimeter. From his firm conviction that um, that God lives and that that the restoration happened, and 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 here you are, <clears throat> kind of saying the same thing. And most the, most of the people that I interact with, they kind of go through this crisis of faith, and then they're like, "Oh well, I know too much now. I just 
I know too much history. I know too much of the baggage and I've seen too much, you know, unpleasant things going on. And so, um, they even, you know, they even look back on spiritual experiences they had and just kind of dismiss them and say, well, that must've been just, you know, confirmation bias or, or indigestion or whatever it was. <laughs> but here you are someone who, after reading your books, I, I can't imagine there's a historical tidbit about the church that I know that you don't. And you're standing here resolute with your spiritual convictions and, and your testimony. Well, yes, I resolute perhaps, but you know, I, I feel sometimes like Dostoevsky. He once said, it's not as a child that I believe in Christ and confess him. My Hosanna has passed through a great crucible of doubt. And I don't, well, I, I've had my crises of faith. I've had some large and some small, but I think doubt is something that I at least have learned to live with side by side with my faith. So it's um, it's a conviction that was challenged from that from that time as a 16 or 17 year old boy, and it's been through a maturing and a stealing, as you as you might say. Is that what you yeah, say? Absolutely. I mean, my. You know, for some years, my life in the church followed, I think, a fairly conventional trajectory. Um, moving back east at 16, immersion in the church, um, I, I became just insatiably curious um, about church history and church doctrine. I, I read everything I could get my hands on. Suddenly, all plans for college collapsed into the one dream to go to, to, to BYU. And I think that's typical of a lot of people that come to the church at that age where I wanted to be surrounded by like-minded, like-feeling individuals. And so I went to BYU for a year and then on to my mission in Brazil. In Brazil? Yeah, Brazil. Any good experiences there? Uh, two years of terrific experiences. Um, uh, powerful, powerful spiritual manifestations that I experienced personally, healings, conversions, miracles in the lives of people that we taught, that we interacted with. It was a wonderful, rich two years. And then I came back, finished up at, at BYU, and was married. And So what years were you at BYU? I was in BYU. I went there in 1975, and after the mission, it would have been, I guess, until I graduated, I think, in 1980. Okay, so, so, so that's, when, that's when, you know, dialogue had been going for, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten years by that point, and Sunstone was just getting off the ground when you were at BYU. That's right. I wasn't, I, I wasn't exposed to that aspect of Mormon culture, intellectual life, really, in those years. I was very focused on other things. I, I mean, I was very strong and solid in the church, but professionally, I aspired to be a, an English professor or a historian, and hadn't any interest, really, in integrating Mormon studies, Mormon history, into that project. Oh, really? So did you did you even know who Leonard Arrington was at the time? I think I probably had heard of him, but had uh, I don't think I'd probably read an article in Mormon studies uh, in that throughout that whole period. Oh, wow. And so what are you studying at BYU? Comparative literature. Okay. And so mostly I was just studying languages, Greek and German and Portuguese and Spanish and um, literary theory and preparing for career in graduate school. Did you have any favorite? Times. Did you have any favorite authors that really inspired you? It was always the Romantics. 
it was then and it, it continues to be to this day. And, uh, you know, they, they shaped me not just intellectually, but really spiritually as well, I would say. Tell us what a romantic is and who some of them are. Well, in uh, romanticism was a pan-European phenomenon, but um, most of the people that I read were British romantics like Lord Byron and Shelley and Keats and William Blake and Bobby Burns, uh, most important German ones, Schiller and Goethe. And These are all the I, people that inspired the uh, movie Dead Poet Society, is that right? Yeah, Dead Poet Society and uh, oh, there have been a, a lot of wonderful movies made about um, Bright Stars, a recent one that I guess was about John Keats. Um, but Romanticism struck me then, and it, and it strikes me now, as a, a kind of um, literary, or more broadly, an, an ideological version of, of Mormon theology in so many ways. Really? Um, if there was one guiding concept or principle behind Romanticism, then I would say it's, it's the notion of, of agon, or struggle, or contestation, this sense that we inhabit a dynamic universe, that there is an infinite potential to the human soul, that there is a, there's an agonizing conflict between the, the, the sense of infinitude and of endless possibilities that our spirit represents, challenged by this, the, the limitations and the frailty and the weakness of the human tabernacle that we find ourselves imprisoned in. Um, but it's a, it's a remarkably optimistic and far-reaching and exuberant kind of ideology that centers on human freedom and, and endless possibility. That sounds like Joseph Smith. Sounds, it, it sounds very much like Joseph Smith. Now, when were these books written? You know, just generally, the era. Late, very late 1700s okay. until, until about 1830, 32. Okay, so, so that's, that's potentially a bit contemporaneous. of Contemporaneous. Is that a bit of a milieu that Joseph could have been swimming in then a little bit? Well, I think he was. I don't know that he himself ever read, you know, any of the British romantics, but, you know, there's an American version of it, which usually comes along a little bit later, 30s, 40s, American transcendentalism, Emerson and Thoreau, Thoreau and, and, yeah. and, and that group. But I think he's absolutely participating in the generalized kind of intellectual environment that is post-French Revolution, which has begun to reject this kind of psychopathological god of Calvinism yeah. that, that has, is trying to find a way to reconcile belief in God with a more enlightened view of, of humanity and humanitarianism and uh, the, 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 the positive possibilities of, of human nature and human society. And so I think Joseph's project religiously was parallel to what these poets were trying to carry out ideologically. Mm. So you were a romantic in college. Absolutely, through and through. <laughs> yeah. That makes your wife, fiance at the time, a happy woman then. Well, yeah, she, uh, <laughs> my wife was, was British educated and, and highly cultured and literate in in, in art and literature and culture, so that was part of what made us so happily compatible at the time and since. Was uh, Ernest Wilkinson at BYU while you were there? No, I, th I think he had left just left. before I got there. Yeah. Was Dallin Oaks the president? Dal Dallin Oaks was the president, yeah. What a okay. wonderful time that was to be a student when he was president. Yeah, yeah. Was it, was Danny Inge playing basketball back then? Was he was. After you? Yeah, he was playing just as I was leaving. Okay, okay. Yeah. Good years, good years. Yeah, terrific. All right, so you 
So you get your undergraduate degree in what? English literature? Comparative literature. And you didn't know Eugene England. He was there, right? Yeah, he was there, but I'd, I'd never never met him. I'd read some of his essays, huh. but hadn't met him or gone to any of his classes. Okay. So, so my wife and I were married and immediately started our family, as so many people in the, we call them the McConkie-Kimball generation did, <laughs> under, the, <laughs> under the sense that that was our, that was our duty. And yes, yes. And, uh, and so that it, it immediately engendered tremendous financial hardship and complications for us. Uh, immediately, one of our children encountered severe health problems. We went bankrupt, needed to, we had to drop out of school. I went into business with my father, who by that time was running a successful bookstore in Virginia. Oh, yeah. And uh, we bided our time there while we applied to graduate schools and uh, and made our decision to go to Chapel, no, initially to Cornell. Uh, let, me, let me just jump in for just one second. I'll never forget, yeah. when I was at BYU, Elder Holland was uh, president of BYU. And uh, I took a religion class from him, and because I went out with his daughter a little bit, I, I got to know him just a tiny bit. And he he spoke really fondly of the decision to get married early, have kids early, and go to graduate school, and just to, to go for it. And he didn't do that without um, acknowledging the difficulties, but he just he really bore testimony to something about how that strengthens you and and builds you in a way you would have never guessed versus being more conservative about spacing and waiting and all that stuff. Did you, I mean, it sounds like you had some rough times. Did do you feel like that kind of, you know, forged your temperament or, you know, your strength or your character in some important way? Absolutely. I mean, it, they were, they were unspeakably <clears throat> wrenching, difficult times. I mean, I could regale you with horror stories of the things that we went through to try to make ends meet and the predicaments we ended up in, um, taking care of crazy women for, you know, a, a pittance and living allowances. And, and, but it, there's no question that those were invaluable experiences in terms of forging a bond between my wife and me. She had come from a very privileged uh, background, you know, servants, and her father was a colonialist. They lived around the world. Wow! And and suddenly she's taking care of an invalid, trying to nurse a newborn, trying to work nights and help put me through school. And I'm working sometimes three jobs at a time. It's it was the kind of life that I would be appalled and horrified to see my children going through. <laughs> but, you know, we, we weathered it well. And it, uh, I, don't, I don't regret those choices that we made. And miracle upon miracle followed, enabling us to, to make our way through. Yeah, I don't know if that's something I'd wish on my children either, but that's something about Mormonism that I love. Just this, do it and it's going to be hard, but you'll be you'll benefit, and then you do, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we did. Okay, so you went to Cornell first. So I went to Cornell where I was uh, studying in the intellectual history program. Well, that's kind of fancy. Cornell's you know Ivy League, right? Yeah, it was Ivy League, and uh, I I had been made offers at Yale and at Cornell. But Whoa, Cornell's... you turned down Yale? Well, I turned down Yale because Cornell offered 
better terms, better uh. money. And I was just very flattered because I was written in a, a personal invitation from Dominique Lacapra, who at that time was the premier intellectual historian in America. Oh. And he said, come, come study with me. So I was there. Dang. That's and, cool. Uh, and so I did all the coursework in intellectual history, but it, that was the early 80s. And uh, you may recall that was a time of, of higher education's absolute infatuation with post-structuralism and deconstruction and all things French. And I'd gone there to study history, the history of ideas, but all anybody wanted to talk about was post-structuralist literary theory. Just tell us, you know, for those of us who aren't very literate, just give us a sense for what those ideas were trying to do. Well, Derrida was fond of saying that if you can, if you think you can explain post-structuralism, then you don't really know what you're talking about. <laughs> Which makes it worthless. So, <laughs> so I'd be loathed. But it's all about the ways in which language works against itself, the way that our assumptions about language and meaning and how they operate are 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 not what we think. That meaning is always destabilized. That there isn't. That we we have this this sense that there is a truth that we could get to if we could just find the right language to, 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 to capture it, but that absolute stable meaning is always elusive and perpetually deferred. And it, it operates at a level of abstraction and it takes what some people have called the hermene hermeneutics of suspicion to such, in my mind, absurd and unworkable lengths that I just found it utterly, well, verging on nihilism. And uh, so I, I became very dispirited with it and decided so, that. So let me just, let me talk about that because I think that I think that's really important. I think that is important to what we've seen happen in in the Mormon discourse, uh, at least in the circles that I run with. Because I almost agree with everything you said, in the sense that language is tricky. What does anything mean? Everything can and in some ways should be deconstructed because things aren't simple and things are complex and we do come out of a context and that context affects us and and so much of our values and our perspective, you know, is shaped from our environment and is is kind of subjective and even relative depending on where you come from. So I'm just going to try and reflect it, and then I want you to comment on it. So so I kind of resonate with some of that. But what I hear you saying is that maybe it, it's not useful. Maybe it it takes things so far that everything unravels, and you're left with no meaning and, and no value, and you're just kind of left exhausted, lying back, thinking, what's the point of anything? But that's just my crude way to restate it. How, how would you affirm oh, I, or, or explore no that. i think i think you've captured very well at least my response to it and of course its proponents would say that's an unfair simplistic characterization but i'm not saying that it didn't have its own validity in fact george steiner once came to chapel hill and gave a lecture on post-structuralism which he said look it's impossible to intellectually refute derrida i mean there's a kind of, of logical rigor to his argument and he says but at the level of spirit and intuition we know that there's that there's something wrong with where he's trying to take us. Uh, one of the points he made was that, you know, Derrida might be able to argue that there isn't any real essential inherent difference between Dante's divine comedy and anything we might want to say about that divine comedy, but we know there's a difference. Mm. So, so there is such a thing as value and meaning and 
and uh, and so I retreated in the face of, as I said, what I thought was just a kind of pernicious spiritual kind of vacuity mm. to 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 all that. Oh, real quick, real quick, is post-structuralism similar to postmodernism? I mean, are they same same school or totally well, different things? Well, there's there's overlap. Post-structuralism post-structuralism is more concerned with modes of reading texts, whereas postmodernism right. is a broader ideological framework. It, it does the same thing? Does it? Well, both of them work to decenter kind of hegemonic ways of thinking about language or discourse or history. Both of them emphasize fragmentation, and pluralistic perspectives. Um, but I think post-modernism post doesn't necessarily lead to the kinds of impasses that I think okay, post-structuralism okay. and, and you do have sympathies with what post-structuralism is trying to do, right? I mean, speaking of colonialism with your, with your wife, I mean, there are – we do come out of this sort of monolithic Western white male culture that, that maybe has had too much of, a, of an impact on how people think and see the world. So you see, I'm sure that's kind of what post-structuralism was reacting to, right? Oh, absolutely. And they also are reacting to the kind of narratives we tell about history in which there is, you know, one essential process that is unfolding into which we have to fit all right. historical phenomena. Um, I, I think postmodernism has done a lot as well to alert us to the ways in which meaning is always shaped and conditioned by language and by the you know the the limitedness of the human condition and i'm willing to 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 buy and acknowledge the the validity and the value of those kinds of insights but, but you not, want it to be you want it to be an a, an herb or a scent not not a, a, a primary thrust is that right right like I, a flavoring I believe, a flavoring yeah like i mean like heidegger says we 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 inhabit the world linguistically i mean it's true that we we construct a reality out of language we only have access to thinking through words, but I don't think it necessarily follows as a result that there isn't such a thing as truth. I think that it's only subjectively accessible to us, but I, I think that just because you believe something doesn't make it so. I, you know, that we all construct our own realities may be true, but that's a, those are realities with a small r, I think. Yeah, so even, so in this, in this reaction to, to post-structuralism, there's this kernel of faith and spirit and intuition that doesn't want to die. Right. At least, um, at least I don't, I, I don't want to see it die anyhow. So was there, was there, w is there a name to what you fled to a, a type of reaction to post-structuralism? <laughs> like, was there some type of movement or response to that? Well, no, eventually I think it, died out just because people grew weary of paying more attention to the framework than the than the substance so i i retreated to what at that time was one of the oldest and most well-established and respected but very traditional programs in the country in comparative literature i went to chapel hill and there the emphasis in the program was let's study the texts let's let's get back to the tradition let's establish the foundation and then we'll overlay it with expertise in critical theory literary criticism the history of, of, of criticism and so forth so that was my retreat at least okay okay now did, was was that time at um cornell uh challenging like 
you talked about having to kind of um you know deal with a deepening and a and a strengthening and sometimes a destabilizing of your testimony of mormonism did any of that happen at cornell no that was still few years away okay take us take keep us let's go so unc <laughs> chapel hill what what did you did you have a thesis or dissertation at cornell uh no i hadn't begun work on the dissertation okay yet. i just finished the coursework so tell um, us about chapel hill what did you what did you do there so chapel hill a wonderful four years there terrific area of the country wonderful diverse uh church uh, group and uh continued to have children and raise our family and finished my degree in comparative literature. Um, oddly, my focus ended up being Iberian medievalism and modernism. That's so, Spain, right? Spain and Portugal um, and through the Middle Ages and then and then 20th century. And so when it came time to apply for jobs, I applied for positions in Portuguese, in Spanish, in comparative literature, in English, and uh, ended up finding just a really plumb position at the University of Richmond uh, to teach romanticism and literary theory. So we went there in 1988. So you're a Virginia boy. Yep. Went back to Virginia. Been here ever since. Okay. And, and oh, go ahead. Well, so I, I began my career here, you know, published my first articles in literary theory and Greek aesthetics and uh, theories of imitation and Portuguese and um, Brazilian novelists and poets. And and then it was a fluke that really changed my trajectory radically. My father at this time was a collector of a number of things, but one of his hobbies was anti-Mormon books. Hmm. And he himself was a devout, faithful member, but he was just, he was intrigued by this kind of proliferation in the 19th century of anti-Mormon novels and stories. So he kept feeding them to me and, and saying, you're a professor of literature, do something with this You're stuff. smart, you're smart, you can figure this stuff out. Yeah, he said, there seems like there's a story here to be told. And so I remember he gave me three copies of Harper's Magazine from the 1860s, I think, and there was a story, Two Mormons from Muddlety. And as I read this caricature of Mormon mission work, it struck me that, that there were just some very strange things happening in terms of the, the, the literary forms and patterns that, that were appearing through those stories and other novels that I was taking a look at. And so I turned my attention to to writing a book on the uses of the Mormon image in the 19th century. And it struck me that there were two really interesting questions, interesting to me at least, that I wanted to investigate. And one of them was, you know, we all learn from the time we're, we're children that America was founded for religious freedom. When my wife took her naturalization test, that was one of the questions. Why did the pilgrims come to America? And the correct answer was, for religious freedom. And we know that that wasn't true in, in most cases. But certainly that was a way that Americans conceived of themselves, right? We're religiously diverse and pluralistic. And, right. and so my question was, how do you, how do you reconcile that self-conception with the fact that Americans are burning Irish Catholic shanty towns, burning Catholic convents, killing and mobbing Mormons, um, all beginning in the 1830s, the same years that Gustave de Beaumont 
and de Tocqueville are touring America and writing about this paradise of religious tolerance. So yeah, what's up with that? So it reminds it, me of Jefferson writing the Declaration of Independence and fathering children with the slaves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a contradiction, and you could just say, well, it's a contradiction. But I got the sense reading the anti-Mormon literature of this period that, that the writers were engaging in strategies of representation that allowed them to reconcile that contradiction. And it turns out that the principal strategy that was being employed was to reconstruct the Mormon religion into a Mormon ethnicity. Because it's perfectly acceptable, right, to kill Indians or burn, you know, lynch blacks or, or, or you know, mob, you know, Irish immigrants. Hmm. Nativism gives you the justification to, 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 to try to expunge threatening ethnic groups. So they're not susceptible of the same kinds of, uh, or, 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 or they don't, they're not deemed worthy of the same kinds of protections and respects, which a religious group might be. Right. And the success with which this effort was carried off is evident in the fact that if you go to the most recent edition of the Harvard Encyclopedia of Ethnic Groups, Mormonism is listed as an ethnic group. Really? And in fact, in the entry, it says Mormonism is the only example in American history of an indigenously derived ethnic community. In other words, of an ethnic community that is just created ex nihilo. And you put those two things together, and, and it just it made sense to me, and this is what I argue in my first book, Viper on the Hearth, that because it was also um, in many ways advantageous to the Mormons themselves to be seen as a, as a, as a distinct and, an ethnic community, that this process was effectively carried out largely through popular culture in the 19th century, and it persists to some extent today. Are you saying that they helped us become kind of an ethnic group? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, Mormons had their own self-interest in the execution of that process insofar as it helped to convince Mormons that, yeah, they really were distinct, that they were a chosen people, a people with a, uh, a, a special destiny and identity. And so it worked to the ideological purposes of both groups even though they were engaged in the process for very opposed reasons. You know, th this is interesting to me because um, when, I was, <clears throat> when I was struggling with, and I'm still struggling with it, with, um, with the, the predominant culture within Mormonism in the 21st century, which after reading People of Paradox, I'm reminded that 21st century Mormon culture is very different from early 20th century Mormon culture, um, which is maybe even closer to, um, which makes sense, Joseph, you know, what Joseph Smith would have wanted for us than what we seem to have from my point of view. But when I was struggling with 21st century Mormon culture, what I, I discovered, Kaim Potok, who, who wrote about um, Judaism's you know, attempts to, to deal with modernity and science. Right. And, and, you know, I, I discovered the, the reform Judaism movement and, and the, you know, the, um, other branches of Judaism and how rich and, and diverse Jewish culture is where, yes, they're, you know, the Hasidic or ultra Orthodox strains, but they're also progressive strains and liberal strains and, and moderate strains. And you could kind of, 
find a home for you as a Jew and still be able to call yourself a Jew. And so I started talking openly about how, the, you know, we need something like Reform Mormonism. We need we need a place for progressives or <laughs> open-minded people. And, and the response I got from the kind of, let's just say, post-Mormon crowd was always, we're not like the Jews. We're not an ethnicity. We're not, um, you know, we're, we're not like them. We're just, you know, a bunch of white, you know, Western European people who make green jello. You know, it was just not at all. <laughs> it was not at all showing respect to us as a potential ethnicity. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Do you have, do you have thoughts about that? Well, I don't, I don't know how far you want to push the analogy with Jews. I, you know, I, I'm not claiming that Mormons constitute an ethnic group. Most sociologists would would retreat from that kind of designation, but they do use terms like subculture or global tribe or people. So there's a clear recognition on the part of anybody who has studied Mormonism or anybody who has observed Mormonism that their identity transcends mere denominational status. And that seems to me to be the important point here. That, you know, you wouldn't start a headline by saying a Presbyterian teacher was arrested last night for robbery. But if he was a Mormon, the headline might very well say, a Mormon teacher was arrested, right? So right. It, it functions as a label in ways that don't really correspond to normal denominational designations. So something is happening there. And I'll leave it to the sociologists to, to decide exactly what that is. <laughs> okay. Okay. Okay, cool. So vi that's so that's what Viper on the Hearth is all about. How? Well, that's how, one, oh, go ahead. Yeah, that's one half of it. And then, then the other question that I'm trying to answer at the same time is, what common thread is there, if any, that connects the anti-Mormonism of the 1830s with the anti-Mormonism of the 21st century? And you know, what'd you, fi what'd you find? Well. You know, I, I'm not asserting that you can reduce it all to one causal factor. But I think there is one common feature to the discomfort that is a constant in representations of Mormonism from the earliest days to the present. And I think that's what I call the collapse of sacred distance. And this became most apparent to me one day when I was, I was conversing with a colleague He's a very devout, devout member of another faith, and he, he was just viscerally, viscerally anti-Mormon. And we had a good kind of collegial relationship, but he, he, uh, he would just get <laughs> visibly shaken by, by the topic of Mormonism. Finally, after a few years, I confronted him one day, and I said, I said, why don't you tell me exactly what it is that you so, so dislike about Mormonism? And he, he paused a moment, and then he said, okay. He said, do you really believe that a million years from now, you're going to be creating worlds of your own and peopling them with your posterity? <laughs> and uh, I waited just a moment. And then I said, I'll answer that question if you tell me what you will be doing one million years. <laughs> and he said, he said, you know, without a pause, growing in the grace of Christ. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 no. I said, I mean on September 23rd at 10 o'clock in the morning, one million years from today, if I knock on your door in heaven, what will you be doing? <laughs> and he paused for a very long moment. And then all the wind went out of his sails. And, yeah. he said, and he said, I see your point. 
anything yeah. I could say would sound absurd. And for me, that was like an epiphany that it isn't the particulars of Mormon theology as much as the particularity of Mormon theology. It's not what Mormons believe as much as that they believe with a degree of specificity that they presume to know what God looks like and where we were before we were born and what's going to happen in the celestial worlds after this life. And, you know, that you can describe angels and the clothing that they wear and there's a materiality and a physicality and a reality and a definition to Mormon history and theology that transcends anything that you, you find in in the Christian, the larger Christian tradition. And when you do find other prophets or mystics who pretend to have the same kind of detailed, right, experiential um, descriptions of heavenly things, like, like Emanuel Swedenborg in the 18th century, right. you can just say, well, you know, we have to read this symbolically, or it was just kind of visionary, or it's allegorical. But Joseph Smith absolutely prevents you from reducing the Mormon story to allegory or myth. Why? Hmm. Well, because he brings 11 witnesses into the picture. So you can't say that the plates were a figment of Joseph's imagination. And he says that real resurrected beings put their hands on his head and he felt them. So it wasn't something that just happens in his mind. And time and time and time again, he insists on the literal veracity of what is happening. You can't just say the Book of Mormon is a, is a spiritual kind of outpouring of his religious self because what you actually have is a, is a connection via Moroni as translator, as, uh, as, as editor, but also as the last character in that narrative which ties him to a specific place and time in the american hemisphere so in all of these ways mormonism just collapses that distance and once you recognize that and you go back to the earliest anti-mormon literature of the 1830s and you compare it with what's being written in the 21st century this this thread exists throughout Mormonism is mocked because of the specificity of their claims and the concreteness of their representations of spiritual things. And so that to me was a, represented a, a tremendous step forward in understanding one of the major sources of discomfort and tension between Mormonism and the larger Christian world, which historians hadn't zeroed in on, but literature revealed. Yeah, but, um, well, I'll, I will say this. I will say yes. I mean, so many people just love Joseph Smith's theology and the boldness of it. It's just so bold. And and yes, uh, the witnesses and the plates and the claims about ancient America, I mean, they're so bold, right? And yeah. I, I was just I was just thumbing... And they're beautiful. They're bold and they're beautiful. They're expansive. I mean, they take, it's true. Like, what are we going to do? Be playing harps in heaven? I mean, at least Joseph Smith gives us something to do and it involves sex. No, I'm sorry. That was inappropriate of me. <laughs> um, but, but I mean, it, I, I, I use that as a joke, but I mean, it's, it like at least takes it one step further and gives us something, not just a little bit better, but potentially beautiful and fantastic and rich to, to be doing at least a million years. Uh, now I could turn that back to you and say, in a billion years, what are you going to be doing in heaven, uh, Terrell Givens? And 
you could see that you might have the same look on your face as that guy did. And that, <laughs> how far does that go, right? Yeah, but, yeah. But maybe that's what our, you know, the next Joseph Smith in or out of our tradition will tell us. Is that what you're thinking? <laughs> yeah, perhaps. At Although... least he moves to football. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We, we, I think for a number of reasons, we've lost that appreciation for what Richard Bushman calls the culture of boundlessness out of which Mormonism arose. And this is one of the things that I love about Parley Pratt is what fired his zeal in Mormonism was this sense of limitlessness, right? That, that, that God doesn't want to keep us in darkness, that, that prophecy and revelation are not restricted as they are in the Bible, right, to prophet figures, but there is a universal accessibility to, to, to the mysteries of, of heaven, um, that, that, that the universe doesn't operate according to some zero-sum gain game uh, in which our progress can only occur if it diminishes God. And so there has to be this infinite qualitative difference between deity and, and the human. So there, there are no strictures. So yeah, there absolutely is this kind of reveling, this exuberance that comes so much out of that romantic background where once you throw off the shackles of this kind of Calvinistic view of a, of, a, of a depraved human nature, then, you know, the sky is the limit. That's a very exciting thing. But it also seems potentially blasphemous and prideful and arrogant. And, you know, it's, it's no coincidence that one of the oldest motifs in world culture is the motif of the person who flies too close to the sun, who tries to build the tower to get to heaven, who aspires to become like God. Uh, you know, whether you call it hubris in classical culture or pride in the Christian culture, there has always been right a, a universal cultural stigma associated with this kind of vaunting ambition. Was that Icarus? Who is that? Yeah, Icarus who flies too close to the sun, and you know the Tower of Babel from the biblical tradition. And, oh right, right. And, and and Greek mythology is full of morality stories about humans who aspire to become too too much like the divine and are you know are uh, punished as a result. And 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 Joseph uh, pushed those boundaries, didn't he? He he pushed them without any sense of limitation whatsoever. And I think he would have pushed them even further if his audience had been more receptive. But you get a sense that he continually was forced to retreat because of how scandalized his audience felt by the doctrines he was teaching. Yeah. Thank you for joining us today on Mormon Stories. Music today was provided by the Saber Rattlers. Check them out at saber-rattlers.com. The Mormon Stories logo was generously donated by studiocase.com. Thanks for listening. Come, come, ye saints, no toil nor labor fear, but with joy wend your way. Though hard to you, this journey may appear, grace shall be as your day. Well, oh, all is 
Yeah.